Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Rich Lawson. Hello. And joining us back uh, for the first time in a while, our film critic, Cam Collins. Hi. Um, we have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, the back half of the episode, we are getting back into our uh, Emmy season interviews. We have interviews with James Corden and Damon Lindelof. And then in the beginning, uh, Cam and Richard, you guys have been busy uh, both summing up the best movies of the year so far, because 2020 uh, hasn't, in fact, been five years long. We're only halfway through. And then you've both run various lists reflecting on the uh, ongoing protests in the country and also Pride Month. Um, so tons and tons of movie recommendations to come down from both of you. Um, and then this week, we are picking back up our Oscar-themed rewatches with uh, what I think I said on Twitter is really the only uh, Oscar-nominated film that feels relevant to talk about right now, which is Do the Right Thing. Uh, so we'll get talking about that later. Um, but first of all, I guess, uh, Cam and Richard, please start. There are movies that have come out this year, uh, and this year is in fact only halfway over. So uh, <laughs> how was it putting together the best movies of 2020 so far? I imagine it's not like it's been every other year. Yeah, it required a bit of uh, deeper thinking, I would say. I don't know how you felt about it, Cam, but like, for a moment, I was like, I was like, do I put the high note on there? I really liked that. But like, is it one of the best of the movies, uh, movies of the year so far? I don't know. But, but there has been stuff. And I think that usually in the earlier part of the year, you know, we think of like the kind of studio dumping ground, but usually also there's some really good like foreign titles that come out that you were, you know, given a, a short qualifying run in the year previous. And then finally get a theatrical release, uh, you know, in the early part of the new year. And I think one that Cam and I both agree on um, is the Brazilian film Baccarat, uh, which made our list. And I don't want to spoil anything because it does kind of have a twist to some extent. But like, it is a movie about oppressed people fighting back against a really kind of, uh, uh, you know remorseless, dispassionate uh, foe. Uh, And so it has a kind of righteous anger to it that I think speaks to the moment, but also is a really interesting window into Brazilian politics and in a kind of allegorical way. Um, So that was a strong one that was at Cannes, I think, last year. So it was a long holdover, but I'm glad it finally did come out in the U.S. 
Is it about modern Brazilian politics or is it a historical thing? It, it's modern, but it's also, I mean, it's kind of like a genre mashup too. So it's modern Brazilian politics, but it's a little bit of a Western and a little bit of other, it's like a lot of things at once. Um, there are images in there where I thought it was going to be about aliens for a minute there, but it turns <laughs> out, turns out, <laughs> turns out not to be. Um, but I think that that was the correct impression um, from the things I'm talking about. Um, so it's also it is also like a fun. It's like a good righteous anger where you, you know, it's engaging. But it's it's, it's kind of like a western, right? Like people show up. Um, there's a community of of poor people, um, disenfranchised people, and they fight back. Yeah, and it is what yeah. it is, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's co-directed and co-written by Kleber Mendoza Filho, uh, who is a big filmmaker in Brazil. He's run afoul of the the Bolsonaro government. Um, he had a movie called Aquarius with Sonia Braga that was a big thing at Cannes a few years ago. She got some awards buzz uh, for that. But he's been making these very you know movies that are engaged with the the changing realities of Brazil in in a, t- a time of economic boom also met with a vast amount of political corruption um, that saw the ouster of the previous president, and then Bolsonaro was elected, and he's this kind of neo-fascist in in the spirit of Trump and a lot of other people around the world. So his filmmaking has reached a really urgent pitch, I think, um, especially in this movie, but it still manages to be fun in a kind of Tarantino-esque way. So I, I would highly recommend it. What, what else was on the list that stuck out to you, uh, Cam? Um, I, well, I think one that that has to be mentioned in part because I believe it came out like the week or or quickly, like soon before uh, New York and L.A. were on lockdown. Um, but it was a big Sundance movie, which is um, Eliza Hittman's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which I hope people go see or rent now, because when it was initially online to rent, it was online to rent for $19.99. Um, but now it's it's $5.99, um, which is a definitely it, it's a much different prospect. It's That's kind of hard really to such a great microcosm of what a weird time it's been for movies. It, where like it was in theaters it. and then it wasn't, and it's a <laughs> tiny movie that no one like no offense to the movie, like it does not seem like the kind of movie someone's gonna pay twenty bucks to rent at home. It's not trolls well, tour. Right. I mean, why would you frankly, why would you pay twenty dollars for something that isn't like Trolls World Tour that you know you're going to have to rent or your children will hold you hostage. For that masterpiece for, Trolls World for, Tour. But otherwise, yeah, it is a, it was it was weird to see and, and, and kind of disheartening to see that it was initially there for $20 rental because it's, it's a kind of thing that as a critic you want people to see. It's about uh, a young woman who wants to get an abortion and is facing these draconian laws uh, standing in her way. She's 17 years old in Pennsylvania and... It's a painful, but but I think really just really really compelling movie. Is yeah, Tom Hardy's Capone yeah. number one or number two <laughs> on your list? <laughs> Tom Hardy's Capone, which um, is a good social watch, just just saying. Um, it's oh, a really? Good thing like to, what to, group watch? Yeah, it, it, yeah. If, if if you're someone who's been doing that, it's a good like let us all crap on this movie as we watch it together <laughs> movie. Um, so it's the number one of that list, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely, uh, I think I said a couple weeks ago, it, it, it's one of the most movies of, of, of the year so far. <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, in, in terms of its central performance. 
a movie that is more readily available to those who uh, are on, I think it's Amazon Prime, um, that I was glad you included, Cam, was Vast of Night, um, which is this really interesting little genre movie that sort of styles itself like the Twilight, like a Twilight Zone episode, but has a real artful intent behind its filmmaking. Um, it, it's a cast of actors who I haven't I don't think seen in anything before. Me um, it, it has an interesting pace and tone. So I was glad that you put that on there because I think that one, well, you'll get this joke when you see the movie kind of flew under the radar. Um, uh, but I think it's well worth it. That was a out. joke for one, but I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> well, I liked Fast and Night too, like, which I haven't seen, but it was, um, they put it in drive-ins a couple weeks ago. It was kind of an effort to be like, hey, this is a place where you can safely see a movie now. So it, it feels also, like a, yeah. a valuable vanguard of what movie going might be like. It's a perfect drive-in movie it's like a little yeah it's you know 1950s new mexico and i feel like that's not a spoiler but that sort of does tell you maybe what the movie is getting at sort of but really it's like a switchboard operator a radio dj really talky like really 50s dialogue heavy um and just so I, it's I what baccarat thought it's what you thought might background might have been about and then um the vast really goes for it <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it is the thing that for a second I thought Baccarat was going to be about, but this turns out to be about it. But it's also kind of clear pretty early on that that's what it's about. So it's it's not really a spoiler to say so, but it's just really fun and and really, as Richard said, really just well filmed and um, it's a, an unusual thing to sort of. I mean, this is the era right now, but it's it's kind of too bad that it's just sort of on Amazon. So I, I just want people to find it and see it. Which of these movies do you think could play into the Oscar race if there is an Oscar race and then there is an Oscars? That's a good question. I mean, I think for me, Shirley, the movie about the author, well, I mean, it's about it's sort of an imagined version of the author Shirley Jackson. Uh, this was a big uh, movie at Sundance and Elizabeth Moss is the central performance uh, and she's incredible in it. You know, I think that Her Smell, which was a movie that um, a lot of people like, including myself, really liked last year and featured this incredible towering performance from Moss was maybe a little too uh, outside of the Academy's sort of taste box, I guess. Yeah. Um, th- you know, but Shirley, which is weird. I mean, it's from Josephine Decker, who made Madeline's Madeline a few years ago. So she's a really um, arty kind of almost experimental director. But she's working with someone else's screenplay in this movie. And so it's a little more accessible. It's about a real person. And I think Moss is incredible in it. So I think of the lists we have... That would be the one I would say is most likely to, you know, carry on into that conversation if that conversation even happens. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think if only because Elizabeth Moths, I mean, how many great performances does she have to give before the Academy? Um, I mean, I know they've all seen Mad Men, so just give it to her (laughs) for that, even if you don't see these other movies. Um, But she's she's really phenomenal in it. And. Yeah, you know, but another year, I don't know that I would have felt the same way about it having a, a kind of chance. And, and I agree with Richard that her smell and some of her other kind of indie film projects are um, sort of under the radar. I'm also thinking of the other Alex Ross Perry film she made that I'm forgetting the name of right now. Queen of Earth. Um, Queen of Earth, right. Yeah. Where just the Academy was just not going <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't going to touch that. But, but I with think limited this, choices. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you kind of cut everything down and I think... Yeah, I would also, I wonder if um, Kelly Reichert's First Cow has a chance at something, screenplay, something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because she's another on the radar um, kind of director who hasn't made a, a big enough movie, I think, or a consensus enough movie, I think, for the, the Academy to notice. But 
First Cow, which is really, um, I really quite enjoy that movie. I enjoy my my farm boys. My Oregon, <laughs> is it Oregon, right? Yeah. Oregon, I think I'd say yeah. Oregon Territory. Yeah. 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 Um, for the first time in a few years, post Old Joy, she finally made a movie about men again. So I feel like at least <laughs> <laughs> the Academy must notice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about like for Emmys actually, because um, Richard, you put Bad Education on your list, and that I think is the only movie you guys have that was never going to have a theatrical release. It premiered at Toronto yeah. last year, but it was bought by HBO and kind of wound up being pressure. And I think we talked about this and like the fact that it only premiered on HBO made it just like every other movie. Um, I don't think it will be eligible for Oscars in that way, but um, I wondered if Richard, what you put, you putting it on there as a preview of what's to come with critics list this year, where there's going to be a lot of movies that didn't play in theaters that make it anyway. Yeah. I mean, putting it on there was, is a little bit of a cheat. I think, you know, it's like, it is a movie that played at a film festival, but it never got a theatrical release. So like, and it was, it aired on television. I don't know. So, but I put it on there because, you know, we've had a, it's been a, a slow year thus far, but it's also just very good. And um, it's lead performance um, from Hugh Jackman. It's I, it's one of my favorite of his performances. I think it's so nuanced and interesting playing this you know, at first, really upstanding, successful superintendent of a school system in Long Island. That, and then, as the movie goes in a very interestingly paced way, um, you realize that he is not exactly the uh, decent guy that he seems to be. Um, and then, the, it's a great supporting performance from Allison Janney, who's kind of his second command at the school, um, and uh, who is also involved in this. Uh, embezzlement scheme. And, you know, I think that for Emmy's purposes, like, if enough voters saw it, like, who wouldn't want to give Hugh Jackman an Emmy, like, in the Television Academy? Like, maybe there actually will be a live ceremony. I kind of doubt it. But, like, he would be there. That would be exciting. And Allison Janney, I think if she won, that would be her 43rd Emmy <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a lot of those. Um, but it's, I just think it's really good. And so I, I included it on the list because, um, you know, I think our understanding of what a quote-unquote movie is uh, in terms of what format it plays in and where uh, is is evolving. So, um, you know, if we're going to include a Netflix thing uh, on there, we might as well put an HBO thing on, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, and it's also just, you wouldn't, no one would watch it thinking that it was a, a series or anything but a movie. Um, so I think that should be what these academies giving awards should probably just make the rule. <laughs> uh, do the people making this call it a movie when they were making it? Then, <laughs> then, then it's a movie. To, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it has to be. It's very clearly a movie, and it is. I agree. It'd be like really good. And I, I would love. I mean, I would love for the the uh, AMPAS, like the Oscars, to, in particular, talk about Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. I think she's in particular is better in this than in the film that she won an Oscar for, um, and mm-hmm. yeah, and no shade, but that's, you know, I'm glad she has one, but she should get a second one yeah, um, just, for this, which should have been her fifth, so whatever, they just need to catch up. <laughs> they need to give her as many Oscars as she has Emmys. They both do something that's very hard for actors to get right. They have a scene together where they do some really good sandwich acting. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> where they're sort of sharing a sandwich on some school bleachers, and it's just like a really well done scene. And when Hugh Jackman bites into the sandwich, you were like, oh, that must taste really good. <laughs> so they, they work really well together uh, and with their uh, their food props. Yeah. And they have this, I think, that, you know, they're not a couple in the movie by any means, but they are, they are friends. And I think that they just have, their characters have this chemistry where in the scene that you're talking about, you can just tell that they know each other's secrets without them really explicitly talking about those secrets. And we get to a point in the movie where we 
figure out the extent of those secrets, including the embezzlement thing. But it's just like good acting of like people who aren't telling you everything that they know about each other. But when you look back on the scene, it's all there. It's all right there. Um, well, you guys have given us a lot of things to catch up on, which is really fun because a lot of times at this halfway point of the year, there's a lot of movies that like played in the limited release in New York and LA and aren't going to be on DVD for a few months. And like there's an in-between, but all of them are now available or I think all of them. Um, and then yeah, Richard, most of them. I mean, that, that is what a cool thing about this year too, is that is that people are putting stuff out there because, you know, the theatrical option isn't there. So everything is at your fingertips at least. Yeah. Um, and then Richard, you have a list this week, in addition to the, um, best movies that, uh, to celebrate pride month that I love the topic you chose. Um, it's, um, it's 10 streaming LGBT movies that are not about coming out, which I think you might've talked about even before on this show that like the coming out movie genre, um, has a lot to offer, but you're kind of often looking for something a little bit different. Yeah. So that was, um, our, our Hollywood editor, Hillary Buses. It was kind of her idea because we were thinking about, okay, you know, like if, if we did the standard, you know, here are 10 LGBT movies that are streaming online, it would kind of be a lot of the same stuff that you see on a lot of the lists. And I had also written about when I reviewed Love, Simon, where half of that review is like talking about the movie itself. And then the other half is like, okay, this is good. But as an adult, I'm a little sick of seeing this same coming out thing replayed over and over and over again, because we get so you know, in comparison, so many fewer movies about what it, life is like for LGBT people past that point, you know. So that was kind of one of the rubrics that we set up for the list. And then the other, of course, was that it was streaming on a readily available subscription service. So not free, but, um, you know, for the low cost of, you know, anywhere between 5 and $15 a month, um, be it Netflix or Criterion Channel or whatever. So it was an interesting challenge. Um, there were some things like BPM and Can You Ever Forgive Me that I wasn't surprised of, that I put on the list. But uh, it also also forced me to seek out some things I hadn't seen, like The Watermelon Woman, which I mentioned last week when talking with Franklin Leonard, which is this really interesting movie from 1996 from the filmmaker Cheryl Dunye, um, that's kind of this metafiction about her as a filmmaker investigating a fake or a made-up Black actress from the 1930s and, and trying to fill out the details of her life more than were available just on screen. Um, so that was really interesting. It's, it is about her lesbian identity, but it's also about filmmaking. And so it's not just about gay people talking about being gay, you know, uh, which I which I liked. Um, and I also found um, on, on, on Amazon Prime um, this old movie called uh, A Very Natural Thing, which... I put on the list, even though I don't think it's a very good movie, but it's interesting in that I think it was the first movie about gay people made by a gay person released commercially in the United States ever. Um, And it came out in 1974. And it's this very kind of trite sort of white gay bourgeois in New York talking about, you know, open relationships and stuff. It's not, it, it doesn't cover any exciting territory, but as a, as an artifact of its time, it's pretty fascinating. I'm looking at your write-up now. He's like talking about it um, involving trips to Fire Island and a caddy dinner party, which is like obviously things that still exist. But I imagine was a fascinating thing to get. They get definitely of from... still exist. <laughs> <laughs> but 50 years ago, were they different? Yeah, yeah. Um, they were different in that um, there seems to be uh, no self-awareness about it. You know, because <laughs> in in I think in their minds, or at least in the film's mind, they're the first people to ever talk about this stuff publicly. Um, and now we've seen that you know repeated and repeated in so many things. A Varying quality. And I think, you know, that's the thing is not every LGBT movie has to be some paragon of, of, of artistry. And, and, you know, there, we can have our own sort of silly throwaway things and, uh, and they still count for something. I would um, just throw in one 
interesting thing I saw um, on Criterion. I don't know how many of our listeners subscribe to Criterion, but maybe a fair number or a higher percentage than usual. But there is a 1991 movie called The Living End by Greg Araki that I haven't seen since it came out, but I saw it at the Angelica when I was a 16-year-old you know, high school student. And it's described as the Thelma and Louise of, you know, the new queer movement. And I just remember it being absolutely, you know, bold and daring. Basically, you know, two young men who I I can't remember if both of them have AIDS or one of them figures out, you know, gets diagnosed with AIDS and they go on this kind of wild outlaw road trip. So I'm I'm looking forward to watching it again and seeing, you know, testing my uh, the, the reactions I had at age 16. But on a day when we're going to talk about do the right thing to it, just it's a, from a similar era and, and a movie I saw in, under similar circumstances. So that that might be another interesting one. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that one. But I think, and you know, if you're gay and around our age, it, Mysterious Skin is the Greg Araki movie that we probably grew up with, um, yeah. you know, JGL and Boy Hustlers and et cetera. Um, and yeah, so th- that's why Greg Araki's on my radar. And I know that I need to see, I know that I need to see his other stuff. Yeah. I haven't seen I Mysterious think... Skin in so long either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that something about The Living End, and I, I, I probably should have put it on the list, frankly, but um, is... That in, in putting the list together, you know, I think we all have our blind spots or we all kind of have some assumptions, at least, that like the conversations we're having, we're having them for the first time. And the, the movies were, that are served to our generation or our particular age, like it is this is this is the, the end all be all. This is the, the, the first foray. And then you actually look and it's like, no, these things have been spoken about in a lot of interesting ways for decades, you know. And I think that The Living End is, is a good example of that, that there was an AIDS narrative happening concurrently with like Angels in America or whatever it just doesn't isn't talked about in the same way um and so i think really the idea behind this list was to just kind of encourage that further digging in the way that it, it, it made me do some you know is that, that like the queer canon is actually quite a lot bigger i think than sometimes it gets credit for and something like criterion channel which you know listeners of this podcast i think would really enjoy having a subscription to it's been an invaluable resource during the quarantine for me it just opens up the door to all this possibility of films that you might have overlooked that aren't you know just readily available on netflix or something they do such a good job well richard i'm so glad you made this list this is awesome yeah and particularly in a world where star wars is taking credit for a, a 0.5 second long <laughs> lesbian <laughs> an exclusively gay moment <laughs> Yeah, that that half my gay friends didn't even notice. So what was the point? Um, <laughs> made me feel paranoid that I thought that I saw something I didn't. But I confirmed that they did that. It's just good to have history. Yeah, I, I like the expansive spirit behind the list you're working on this week too, because I had been, um, you know, talking to our editor Hillary Busis about it and was describing it as protest movies. But looking at the list of films that you're putting together, and you're actually doing two lists, I think, of documentaries and fiction films. It's not really about protest, but like a really much broader uh, defined sense of what that means. So uh, do you want to talk about these lists that you're publishing? Yeah, it started off as protest, but then I just kept thinking about forms of defiance broadly. And also, you know, the movie part of it is also grown more complicated because some things are just you know, some things are five minutes long and couldn't be more powerful. And other things are James Baldwin interviews, which when they're an hour long or two hours long, are basically movies. <laughs> yeah. um, and also James Baldwin is such a 
performer and such a, a, a screen presence that, you know, I'm just going to call it, I'm just going to put it all on the same list, frankly. Um, but I, I wanted to do something that, similar to what Richard's talking about with just a sense of historical understanding of how we talk about these things, I, I wanted to, first of all, do a list that had some Black-directed films from the silent era, just to remind people that Black directors have been in the game since the beginning of the medium, and we're doing these independent works that were extremely popular among Black audiences who couldn't go see movies in the same spaces as white audiences. And that these were, you know, just reminders that since the beginning, Black directors have been making movies about uh, racism and injustice since, you know, the 1920s, and that it's worth kind of calling attention to that, but also I, I I feel like we've all been online and, 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 and in the news flooded with videos taken at protests and, and a lot of coverage and, and seeing the ways that things get interpreted by various groups of people. Uh, I just wanted to point out a number of films that try to wrest the narrative away from bad media narratives and bad political narratives toward just thinking about Black lives. So... I have, you know, in the in the movie movie list of, of feature films, I have some obvious things like how could you not have Selma? Malcolm X is there. I'm, I'm, it's a kind of a list that assumes that we've all seen Do the Right Thing, which is kind of a way of saying if you haven't, <laughs> please <Start there>. finally, <laughs> yeah, please finally um, do that. Bigger things like that, but also really a lot of. A lot of things like a documentary from the 70s called The Murder of Fred Hampton, who was a, a you know a Black Panther leader um, in Chicago who was killed by the cops as the film was being made. So kind of halfway through, the film turns into an investigation of the crime scene and giving footage that really went against what the police narrative about his shooting was. Um, so that's And like it was released of, at the time? I did not know that. It was released at the time, but these kinds of things, you know, there's a reason why that movie I'm linking to on YouTube, <laughs> because a lot of these things, a lot of these things are just sort of underground. It's not on Disney films. Plus, is what you're saying. Yeah, not on Disney Plus. It is, it is on um, Amazon as well, so I link to that as well. But it, it, it is the kind of thing that it's just like really, really under the radar. But also, I mean, you know, Spike Lee has made amazing documentaries on these subjects that I think we don't talk about as much because. He has so many great films, but he made a film about the the Birmingham bombing uh, in which four young women died called Four Little Girls, um, which is an event that happens at the beginning of Ava DuVernay's Selma, um, but is expanded here into a full-length documentary. And he made another documentary about Hurricane Katrina. He made two, actually, about Hurricane Katrina, one of which was made, uh, started to be filmed, you know, the month of the hurricane. Um, so it's very raw uh, and, and the responses from people on the ground are very raw. You know, I just wanted to kind of give a, a, a range of things. There's a protest song. There's an Aretha Franklin documentary. There's, uh, you know, a black trans documentary that's also a true crime documentary called Strong Island, um, which is on Netflix. Uh, you know, black woman documentarian working in the 60s named Madeline, Madeline Anderson. There's just just really trying to show people that black artists and black filmmakers have been on this subject <laughs> yeah. for, for, for quite a while. And you know, there's a range of things you, you can educate yourself. You can also have a lot of fun watching Set It Off, which to me is very much a movie about systemic injustice. They don't just rob banks for money. They rob banks because they don't have money. 
for, for structural reasons. Yeah. Um, and also Queen Latifah's in it, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I rewatched Set It Off during quarantine with some friends, you know, just kind of texting each other during the movie. And um, it's amazing how just still pertinent that movie feels. And even more yeah. so, maybe, I guess, you know, and and really, um, you know, opening with the scene of the, the bank robbery and then uh, Vivica A. Fox's subsequent firing from the bank. It just it just sets off this this tone of, um, you know, an injustice being sort of righted in violent fashion throughout the rest of the movie that, um, yeah, that's and it's, and it's like you said, it's fun, too. Yeah, it's just it, it right. It's really fun and it's really angry. But it's not a film that when it came out when I was younger and watching it, I really thought of in terms of the political impulses behind it. But we're watching it now, um, or as an adult, it's just really oh, this this film is very much about being a black working class woman um, who feels rightly that the world has been made unduly difficult for her to survive. So she goes Bonnie and Clyde about it and starts robbing banks. And also un- un- unapologetically queer uh, yeah, in, in, in the form of the Queen Latifah character, where there's not really any questioning of the fact that she, you know, it, it dates women. Um, it's just sort of a fact of the movie. And it reminded me, a movie that I put on my list was, um, in my, on my list was Bessie, um, where she plays mm. uh, Bessie Smith. Um, and, and, you know, and she's similarly, you know, there's no coming out narrative in that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Queen Latifah should do more movies. She's always good. Yeah, yeah. I, I would argue part of the Queen Latifah queer canon. I'm going to put Chicago in there. Mm. I just feel like when you're good I to just mama. Feel like, yeah, yeah. I just you know what you know. I feel like I mean that role clearly has people like like Bessie Smith in mind. I think and and she plays it that way. It's no wonder she, no wonder she was cast to play her in a biopic. Um, stuff like that. I just feel like we are too recent in how we look about think about these things and there's just a lot of great stuff out there in both the queer and the black and the intersection um canons that it's a good time to you know before we're all out of lockdown (laughs) 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 so we can watch things for a little longer um i think and as you were saying, like some of these have been hard to find or um, have been inaccessible, but like looking at your list, like Daughters of the Dust, I know is on Criterion and it's been made available yeah. free. So even if you haven't paid for it, you can get it. And you're seeing some stuff on YouTube. So the accessibility of this, of a lot of movies like this is probably greater than it's ever been. Yeah, it really, I, I mean, I was really glad when Criterion made a bunch of their stuff uh, free. And I'm always glad when people take, you know, I don't, I don't, not big studio things, don't put Avengers Endgame on YouTube, you'll get in trouble. <laughs> the FBI will come after you. But definitely things that are underground that people otherwise like would have no way of seeing. Uh, like I have a movie about the Attica prison uprising that that is very much on the ground in the moment that it's just been impossible to see until like a year ago when someone put it on YouTube. So I'm glad that it's there because it, you know, after hearing Al Pacino scream about it. And Dog Day Afternoon for my entire life, I wanted to see the movie about it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's good that we can. Um, well, we're going to talk about Do the Right Thing, as you mentioned, kind of the uh, the baseline for the list that you made. But um, before we get to it, we should talk about two studio movies that are coming out this week. Um, the King of Staten Island, which is a universal film, which will be on On Demand, and then Spike Lee's Defy Bloods, which will be on Netflix. Um, Richard, you, uh, you've seen King of Staten Island. I, I don't think anyone else has. Do you want to give us the rundown on that one quickly? Yeah, it's the new Judd Apatow, you know. Uh, it's it's his first uh, feature film since 
train wreck, right? Yeah, oh, I remember train wreck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, it feels like from a different era. Um, Amy Schumer is now Good. a star of, star of a cooking show. So, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, amazing how careers change. Um, but yeah, and the the big th- the big thing about this beyond it being an Appetite movie is that it's Pete Davidson. Um, you know, he's the lead. It is loosely based on his life. He plays you know a kind of slacker kid living in Staten Island, like where Pete Davidson grew up. His father was a firefighter who died in the line of duty, just as Pete Davidson's did. And uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it's another of kind of an Apatow hang movie, less obsessed with uh, middle age uh, than like Funny People or uh, This is 40 uh, were. Uh, This is a kind of return more to like, you know, trying to turn someone like Seth Rogen into a star. And, uh, you know, it has its merits. Marissa Tomei's in it. She's great as... um, Davidson's character's mom. Uh, Belle Powley plays his sort of girlfriend. She's good. But for me, you know, I I didn't think I would be saying this based on Davidson's kind of last high-profile movie, which was a movie that's available on Hulu called Big Time Adolescence that I saw at Sundance a couple years ago, in which he's more of a supporting uh, character, but is really good. Um, But with him as the lead in this, it doesn't really work for me. I don't think he can really um, hold a movie that's this kind of listless and plotless. Um, The the film asks a lot of him while also doing nothing to support him. Um, Mm. And I just don't think that he really is able to rise to the occasion. I don't know if that's 100% his fault. It might also lie in the hands of Apatow, just really not really knowing what story he wants to tell. Yeah, that's always kind of a factor of Apatow movies, isn't it? Where like they are long and they hang out and they ramble. And like if you have the charisma at the center of it, it will really work. And then if like if your jokes aren't landing, like the movie is not going to just like zip along past it. You kind of have to hold the center. I Yeah, I was actually, Katie, you, you used the word long and that was actually going to be my question. How long is this film? This is a Pete Davidson s- relevant question, but really an Apatow <laughs> relevant question as well. Um, Such a good question. It really is the almost the only question. It has. It has. I would say it has big length energy. You know. Um, okay. It, it's uh, it's like it's about a one thirty five. I think so. It's over two hours. Um, oh, and, but, but for you, Apatow. But, Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's I you meant 135 hour minutes, and... not an hour 35. Oh, oh no, oh, sorry. It's, oh. it's it's over two hours. Um, hour 35 it, would have been the correct, perfect. That sounds yeah. great. correct number. <laughs> yeah. correct and answer. it would have streamlined it into something maybe kind of more, you know, effective. Whereas, you know, I was watching it uh, on a screener, you know, at, at home and... When the movie ended, I turned to my boyfriend and I was like, is it four hours later? Like, how long was that movie? It feels (laughs) incredibly long because nothing happens. Um, Mm. And, you know, there are these little vignettes that kind of fritter away and don't really lead to anything. There is sort of a sense of realization of growth. I'm not saying that every movie has to be a kind of morality lesson. In fact, I think Judd Apatow got bogged down doing that over his career, especially like in stuff that he didn't even have as direct a hand in, like the way that Girls ended, like with um, Hannah Horvath having a baby, like that was apparently Apatow's idea. And I think that he's infected a lot of his stuff with like this kind of weird, like lib version of family values. And I, I guess it's good that he sort of shies away from that in this, but at the he shies away from it and doesn't really replace it with anything else. And so the movie just kind of ends without 
really any sense of catharsis or accomplishment or anything. Um, so I just don't, you know, and again, it's like we were talking about with um, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, this is a $20 rental, like the high note is a $20 rental. And I saw in in responses to my tweeting out of my review of the high note, people being like, sounds good, but I'm not paying $20 to watch that at home. And I just, I worry that the King of Staten Island will suffer a similar fate. I don't think that I would pay $20 for for a Pete Davidson movie that's not about him. It's more, I don't know, what what kind of comic actor would I do that for? I would yeah. I would do that for, like, if it were 1990 or 1995, I would have done it for Eddie Murphy. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> right. But but yeah. not, I don't, I don't. But, and, and I mean, you know, he's SNL, so I can see a lot of him for free. So yeah, I, I don't know what the is- strategy is there. We hear, we've already heard a lot from him. Like, all of his desk bits on SNL are just, like, him joking about his life. Like, I think if it was an actor or a comedian who we sort of knew less about and this was a, a chance to really get inside their head or their heart or whatever, that would be um, more worthwhile. But on a bigger question that I want to put to all of you, because this is a, cu- a discussion that I've been having with friends, is... You know, here in New York City, like going to see a movie is $15, sometimes more. So you're kind of already paying most of that price anyway. But there's there does feel to be a palpable difference between doing that in a theater and doing it at home. And I think part of it for me is when you're going out to a theater and spending that kind of money, you're like making an event of it. Maybe you're going to dinner beforehand or after or having yeah. a drink or whatever. Right. You right. can discuss it, whether it's a comedy like this or a serious movie like Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, there's something to talk about. So you're paying for like the nights or the days experience, uh, which Ooh. feels entirely different, just like hitting a button and then you're $20 poorer and you're just still on your couch. Well, yeah. and, I think the, and I think that's 100% right. I, I imagine the math in the minds of the studios is in addition to just wanting to make some kind of money off this, like, but you could have four people watch it, except in quarantine, you probably can't have four people watch it. Um, and then and then the other thing that I think is, you know, unfortunate for what Judd was probably trying to do with Pete Davidson is if you have, you know, premieres in Los Angeles and New York and you have a bunch of buzzy screenings and you have people saying, wow, what a performance like this guy could really, you know, this is a whole new way of seeing Pete Davidson. You might have been able to convert Pete Davidson from sort of like a shambly um, guy on SNL to a really fascinating new, you know, movie talent. But in the absence of all of that, it's just really hard to just be like, now I'm paying twenty dollars to spend two plus hours with this guy. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it, this. This really seems to suffer from the lack of an IRL, you know, environment. Yeah, yeah. I think comedy. Um, sometimes I've noticed just there are things that are just so much funnier to me with other people. Um, but yeah. there's also just like this dissonance of. You know, if I already have a Netflix subscription and can just click on something and watch it without paying $20 to only have access to it for 48 hours mm-hmm. or whatever, once I start watching it, there's this dissonance of, so why would I pay $20? I mean, I get it. Again, Trolls World Tour, like, you know, I think the model there was your kids are going to want to watch this a million times. So you're not just paying $20, you're paying $40, you're paying $60 because <laughs> your kids are not going to give up on this movie after 48 hours. Yeah. So I get that, like, make parents go bankrupt. But I don't, I don't, like, that makes <laughs> sense to me. But the Pete Davidson thing, I, the, the Apatow thing, I, I just don't know that this makes sense to me. Well, maybe it'll be what saves theatrical movie going is if the King of Staten Island can't get people to rent it, then um, we'll recognize there is a value in getting people to leave their houses when they feel that it's safe to do so. 
yeah. It's funny that we were talking about the runtime with King of Staten Island because uh, De Five Bloods, the other uh, major movie this week coming out from a major director, is also very long. I think it might also be 135 minutes, if not longer. Um, it's on Netflix. Uh, Richard, you and I both watched it. It is a funny movie to talk about uh, the same week as Do the Right Thing, since I think by any measure it is it is not Do the Right Thing. It is not you know one of the best movies of the 20th century. Um, but I did enjoy it as a kind of uh, shaggy and a little bit of like rambly treasure hunt movie. Um, where'd you land, Richard? I think it's interesting in that I don't know that I've seen a movie like it, you know. Um, There's a movie, I believe it's called The Walking Dead, that came out in the 90s about um, black soldiers in Vietnam. And, you know, obviously that's a narrative that has been not as depicted on screen. We see there are a ton of Vietnam movies, but, um, you know, in, in Apocalypse Now, there are two black characters on the boat. Spoiler alert, they die first. You know, it's really about Martin Sheen. Like, and so I, I like that that Lee is investigating that in 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 the, the present tense of the Vietnam War. But but this movie is mostly about these four guys as as you know older men returning to Vietnam, sort of for a caper, sort of for a memory trip, sort of to exercise some demons. Um, it's a complicated kind of reality uh, it, that the movie exists in, which is also affords for a complicated you know, kind of scheme of, of, of different tones that I think Lee marries well in some cases and not so well in others. But if nothing else, I mean, it's arresting. It looks incredible. Um, it's weird. So yeah, I was, I was, I was happy it existed. It feels very much like Netflix being like, all right, here, take your money. Like we're, we're not going to give you notes, like go do whatever. Yeah. You want. Go to, go, go to Vietnam, uh, take a bunch of these actors with you. Uh, I mean, especially in the beginning when they're like, um, in, I think they're in Saigon and they're like staying at this beautiful hotel and going to bars. So it's like a fun, like, it's almost like the Adam Sandler movies where they all go on vacation. You're like, okay, this is great. Um, and then, then the tone changes from there and changes several times throughout. Um, and as I was saying before, I, I think it gets stronger as it goes on, um, um, even though it kind of diverts into may- maybe more plot than it needed, but it's kind of hard to argue with. Did you guys see his um, last war movie? I-, I haven't finished watching this one yet, um, but did you guys see, ooh, drag my memory, uh, Miracle, Miracle at St. Anna? Yeah, that, was yeah that, was that the one where he was fighting with, with Clint Eastwood. I believe that's his last war film. Oh, yeah, because yeah, um, that came out the same year as um, A Letter from Iwo Jima, right? Yeah. maybe? Yeah. Um, I Which forgot. feels like ancient history, except oh that I don't God. forget like celebrity fights. Um, and I just remember, <laughs> and like Spike Lee versus Clint Eastwood, it's like uh, a, a just celebrity death match ideal for me among directors. Yeah, but that's I remember a, the classic. Yeah, like not having finished this one, but having seen that one and remembering that argument that he had with Eastwood, which was about Eastwood making a, a World War II film that didn't really show any um, any black soldiers, um, with the caveat that. Clint Eastwood did that was that movie was part of a pair of movies in which he showed both the U.S. and the Japanese sides, and I do think that project was admirable. But Spike Lee was right that there were no black faces at all, and black faces matter to these wars actually. Um, so I know that that's where he's coming from, and I'm I'm excited to see Miracle at Santa Ana. You know, um, not his best, uh, I would say, and one that I don't think many people have really seen. So. I I'm did see it. I have one. a really vague, vague memory of it. I mean, this one is interesting. It gets into um, really explicitly. It's something that has come up before, but I think of specifically from First Man. You know, the, the whole sequence where it's got um, 
Whitey on the moon playing over them, preparing for yeah. it, kind of criticizing the space race. And it has elements of that and the whole idea of like them sending black soldiers into Vietnam to fight a war that wasn't theirs. And it's all said pretty explicitly by uh, none other than Chadwick Boseman, who is kind of the fifth member. He's the fifth of the five bloods, um, who is uh, is in the flashback scenes. And it's, I don't know where you landed on this, Richard, and came from what you saw that. So in the flashbacks, there's Chadwick Boseman, who is 40, but, you know, can plausibly be a soldier. Um, but he's with all of the older actors who are just there, like, you know, Clark Peters and um, as I would like Junior, et cetera, are all themselves as 70 year old men um, playing army GIs. Uh, and I kind of liked it. I liked that they didn't kind of bother to put them in makeup or, um, you know, cast younger actors. And it worked, although um, Chadwick Boseman is also the wrong age to play a GI. So it was a little confusing, but I thought effective. Yeah, I didn't know I he mean, was 40. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's like deceptively yeah. old. Yeah, yeah, good yeah. for him. Wow. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was an interesting choice. I, I think that something about the cast, you know, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and Clark Peters, Delroy Lindo, uh, and theater buffs will be happy, Norm Lewis, um, getting, I, I feel like I think of him as a musical theater actor. So it's kind of fun to see him in this. Um, but it's great just having them having an opportunity to carry a movie for two and a half hours, you know, yeah. um, with not not just themselves. There are other people in the movie, but it's really about their dynamic. And, you know, I think that they would have been gone from a portion of the movie had they been recast with younger actors for those flashback scenes, you know. But I think instead we just kind of have the the, the same sort of spirit and energy carried through because, um, yeah, they do a little bit to make them look a little younger, but like not much. And I think that that there's a sort of artistic reason for that, a thematic reason for that. Um, Another movie I was reminded of was there was The Walking Dead, but there was also Dead Presidents in 1995 um, from the Hughes brothers, which is not about Vietnam explicitly i mean it's about people black soldiers after vietnam um kind of feeling a, a really you know intense sense of displacement once they're home and so i think that and this movie share a certain um thematic dna um and i hope this isn't a spoiler but like both are very violent <laughs> um and i think that was the surprising thing to me about the five bloods i thought it was going to be this kind of memory piece and a little bit wistful i thought it was going to be a little bit like um that Richard Linklater movie uh, with Brian Cranston. Last and Lex Fishburne. Yeah. I, I was oh, yeah. thinking yeah. about that too. I was wondering yeah. about that. But imagine about that. that. Yeah. Which, by yeah. the way, is a is a kind of a sequel to the Last Detail with um with Jack That's Nicholson. Right. I don't know if yeah. you've ever seen yeah. that, that one, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, no, it reminded me that Black Klansman is also violent. I had kind of forgotten about how Black Klansman ends with a <laughs> lot of bullets, and uh, the Five Bloods does as well. Yeah. Oh, it does end that way, doesn't it? Yeah, I yeah. forgot that too. That's not the first thing that comes to mind <laughs> I know. somehow. There's, well, so, there's a lot Walter, going on. Paul Walter Hauser is in Defy Bloods as well, and it's a pretty great and a pretty small role as he was in Black Klansman. So I like seeing him uh, kind of get in the Spike Lee repertory. I yeah, love him, period. <laughs> yeah. Put him in everything, please. And, and, and watching this movie, which I hope people will watch, it kind of reminded me that like Quentin Tarantino and Spike Lee both are like students of film they really love genre stuff they both in certain of their films i mean more tarantino more consistently but like both like really love to cram in references to other things movies they love just images they they are obsessed with you know and i think that tarantino gets a lot of credit for doing that and lee gets less credit for doing it um and and in this in this movie like not everything about it works for me, and like not everything worked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for me. But like, it's fascinating to just watch the kind of 
ping pong ball of Spike Lee's mind just kind of bounce around the movie. Like, like yeah. oh, I, oh I, I like this image or, or this archival footage of this or this joke or this moment, you know, this political topic I want to talk about, all sort of given a loose shape in, in a narrative um, that is part, you know, uh, reunion and part like treasure hunt and uh, I don't know I I think it's like it's cool just to see what Spike Lee does when he's given um, something approaching you know uh, a blank check I guess yeah yeah I mean you get like there's multiple apocalypse now references there's a uh, a line where a character says like we don't need no stinking official badges or something like a, a cherisher the Sierra Madre reference um, and like at one point you get like a black man in a make America great again hat wandering through the jungles of Vietnam kind of referencing Colonel Kurtz it is it is a fascinating look into Spike Lee's brain it's a good way to put it uh, you guys want to talk about do the right thing <laughs> speaking of looks into Spike Lee's mind yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know where to start a conversation about do the right thing because when you you know you watch the movie and you start looking up like what has been written about this movie in the last thirty years uh, a lot. The answer is a lot. Um, but Cam, maybe we start with you because you wrote about it um, last year uh, in the context of his Oscar race against Driving Miss Daisy. Um, and I feel like when you ran that piece, I didn't totally buy into the idea that history really would repeat itself and that Green Book would win Best Picture the way that Driving Miss Daisy won over Do the Right Thing. Uh, but it did. I don't know. Did, did writing that essay give you, like, reframe Do the Right Thing for you in any way um, compared to the way you'd thought about it previously? Um, you know, I, I guess I'd always grown up thinking of Spike as in opposition to Hollywood in a certain, you know, to a certain capacity. So, Really what it clarified and rewatching it again and again recently really clarifies just, I think, why he has been so outspoken and angry at Hollywood for ignoring him in many ways until recently. But particularly this movie (laughs) is really I I feel like the more I don't know, the more distance we have from it, the the crazier. I mean, 2020, of course, vision um, in hindsight, but it is a movie that holds up and it lasts. And even as these other things going on in the world, um, you know, yes, we have like camera phones and stuff now, and that has changed how we look at police violence to a degree because now we can all see it. The basic anger, the things that he's responding to are pretty consistent. And the movie just, you know, I, I, I don't know, it just grows more powerful to me. And I just don't think about the driving Miss Daisies of the world at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> they really don't come up. Although they come up for other people, I'm, I'm aware that The Help was a major streaming movie this weekend. Um, do the Right Thing's not on Netflix, so what are you going to do? Yeah, I think it has been on Netflix at various it points has in the been. past. It would be it a great been. time for it to be back on Netflix, but yeah, uh, please you can just rent add it. it. Just add it. You, you, know, <laughs> you know, just just put it on there. Please. Someone has like, the power to do this. It's Netflix. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, You've got the five words right there. Just add the it movie. Does, it does feel it like there. it should be there right now it when he's coming there. out with the five bloods. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's, that's a really good point. Why isn't it there? That's weird. Why isn't it there? Yeah. They've done that for other directors. Like when, when The Irishman was sure. coming out, they did add, you know, Raging Bull and other things. So, yeah. yeah. And right now, just add the movie. Uh. <laughs> Put it there, please. Um, Mike, you were referencing, uh, talking about the living in earlier about, you know, the context in which you saw Do the Right Thing and you were, uh, you know, a a little bit older than I am and kind of probably did see Do the Right Thing in theaters. What, uh, what, what was it for you then versus maybe revisiting it now? Yeah, at the risk of, anyway, at the risk of making it about me, which it's not, um, it was really, really incredibly, um, important movie to me. And I think I came to it through hip hop 
And because I went to high school in Jersey City, and some of my classmates had excellent uh, taste in music and turned me on to Slick Rick, and that took me to this one, and that took me to that one. And and so I was listening to Public Enemy, um, Nation of Millions, uh, hold, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, and feeling, and I was living out in the suburbs, commuting to Jersey City, and just feeling like, you know, there was a world that was so uh, vital and amazing that was so different from this kind of, to me, very um, uh, lifeless world of the suburbs. And so when, you know, Fight the Power, the music video came out, I can't remember the exact sequence, but, uh, you know, I was something like, uh, I guess I was 14 years old. It was 1989. Um, Fight the Power came out and, you know, you fa- to find out that it was a centerpiece in a way of this of this movie. And um, Adam Moss was editing a thing called Seven Days, which was a kind of weekly newspaper, and he put Spike Lee on the cover, and I went into the city to watch the movie, and I think Seven Days was free. I picked one up. I had Spike's um, picture on my wall, and it was just absolutely, you know, uh, mind-blowing to me as a white kid from the suburbs uh, to have access to this world, and I think it was probably happening the same time that we were studying the history of slavery in school and just being totally horrified. So, um so maybe it is interesting to talk about this a little bit at a time when a lot of young white people are, you know, reacting very passionately and try and joining into a movement to say that that this isn't enough because I, I I did feel very passionately about all this at that time and so um so the movie is just going back to it I've seen it I don't know how many times a dozen at least and and there's so many great things about it every time I, I discover something new I did not realize until watching it this time that Frankie Faison who plays the deputy ops in the wire um, is one of the three guys on the corner with uh, Sweet Dick Willie, and of course, you know you've got Martin Lawrence there. You've got to see, you've got all these incredible cameos. Um, th- this time, I was really thinking a lot about Ozzie Davis and, and Ruby D and how they stand for for an older generation. Um, that incredible scene uh, toward the end where Ruby D is just is just screaming, shrieking. Yeah in the streets and and to watch it now you really realize it's it's so different to watch it as a 45 year old and realize the pain that she's in just thinking how many times is this going to happen how is this still happening um and so and so and knowing the the meta narrative of them being civil rights activists like them being this like living yes thank you yes that they that they were that other generation of major civil rights activists um but also the empathy that he shows to um to danny aiello's character i mean he's a hundred percent inside danny aiello's character um there that is that is no kind of caricature i don't think and and then i always come back to and I was thinking about it, the, the decision of Mookie to throw the, the trash can through the window is just like a Zen koan, you know, to me. It's just you can think about it and think about it and think about it, and, and you can see it from a lot of different angles, and it makes a lot of emotional sense, and it's hard to reconcile intellectually. It was very disturbing watching it as a 14-year-old to just ask yourself, this character that you relate to, why did he do it? But you also think, like, you can see why he did it. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you all think about, about that. Um, but that, to me, is what takes the movie from incredibly brilliant to staggeringly great. The, this, this complicated moral moment that's sort of un, unknowable um, you know, and is, has been a subject of conversation for 30 years. Yeah, I was um, 
Th- that part of it, I thought about a lot specifically because of the suite, because I think I'm among the people who's been learning a lot about the, you know, where looting and rioting fall into the line of protest and the, the value that there is in it. Um, and I found the essay that Roger Ebert wrote for the Criterion release of this in 2001, I think. And he talked specifically about that moment of Mookie throwing the trash can. And he wrote the line, among the many devastating effects of Lee's film, certainly the most subtle and effective is the way it leads some viewers, not racist, but thoughtless or inattentive or imbued with the unexamined values of our society to realize that they have valued a pizzeria over a human life. Um, and that's something that you hear all the time talking about looting and about whether or not buildings, you know, <laughs> buildings matter too, as one newspaper really unfortunately wrote it. Um, and that the fact that that's there and do the right thing, that that got, pe- got on people's skin then and then is coming up again in the exact same circumstance, and th- it, coming up again as part of such a similar conversation 30 years later um, really just speaks to how much this movie has going on. Yeah, the trash can moment is always like... It's like I I remember the first time I saw the movie. It was such a wild, <laughs> such a wild thing. I mean, uh, Radio Ahim's death in itself was always like painful to watch, and really only grows more so um, for me. Yeah. But yeah. but but really like the trash can moment. I just I remember the first time I saw the film when I was younger, and I just didn't see it coming. And I think it's really crucial that Lee has the film go to the next day um, and you show the way that people are um, repairing the community because it's not about, you know, like uh, this destruction of property is not because people want to live in unlivable environments where there's glass on the streets and everything looks like destruction. It's not that they don't care about their communities, it's that they're angry and they want to remind us that, that yeah, the, life, the lives matter more than these insurance, uh, these insured properties. Yeah, the I love thing. that they like talk about insurance. A lot of people don't have insurance. Yeah. <laughs> and properties do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I rewatched it um, in anticipation of this uh, recording. Um, I'd seen it probably, I don't know, four times beforehand, and um, but it had been a while. And in my mind, because it's such a seismic moment, you know, Radio Raheem's death and then the the... the the destruction of the pizzeria, like for some reason in my memory, it was like, yeah, that happens like maybe half an hour in. And then the rest of the movie is kind of about them dealing with that. And it's not, it's almost the end of the movie. And what I think is so brilliant about what Lee does with everything that comes before is that it is just this kind of relatively prosaic, just slice of life, you know, this kind of mosaic, this collage of people kind of intersecting in this neighborhood on a hot day. Um, You get little snippets of, other little avenues of their lives and other concerns and characters flit in and out. And, and it all seems like, you know, just sort of a, a sort of rambling, just calm portrait of a time and place. And then obviously that's suddenly terribly broken um, with unnecessary, uh, you know, th- th- this hideously unnecessary death. And I think that that speaks so well to just the reality of of these kinds of things is that they don't arrive with any sort of looming, uh, you know, foreshadowing or or there is no dramatic tension that is then, uh, you know, sort of fulfilled by this thing. It just happens in the scariest, most like uh, sudden way. And um, I think that that's what 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 that helps do in in the, in the film textually is like it takes all the comedy of what's come before because there is a lot of funny stuff in the movie um up until that point and even after to some extent um and it shows you a, a how that is all still part of the same tragic spectrum that um they're all interlinked to each other and i think in that argument you see 
or feel the full breadth of the humanity that's lost, um, you know, in this police killing. Um, and I, I don't know, I just think it's, it's a much deeper movie, I guess, than I remembered it being. And I feel like that's, that's the point, right? Is to, is to totally humanize (laughs) as, as obvious as that should be, um, that probably qualified as a as a radical act in 1991 cinema, and maybe qualifies as it today. To, you know, in a neighborhood that these white cops are trying, you know, are, view as a war zone, or that John Turturro's Pino, you know, views as as some kind of horrifying, you know, environment that he has to survive every day to show that these are people living in their home. And, and there, there is that moment where Spike Lee, you know, when, when the cops are saying, everybody go home, um, and, the, and the firefighters and Spike Lee's, you know, Mookie says, this is our home, like we're home. And so to really, really show that that is a home, that these are people, they're flawed, they're not perfect, you know, they're just like anybody else, um, and and then show this this eruption of violence. And, and boy, I mean, the critiques of the police that I've been reading uh, in in the past couple weeks, you know, there's nothing to argue with in this movie about how they operate as, as something other than what they purport to to operate as. Um, and then and then to have the you know the names the names of the police brutality victims, um, the real yeah. names of people murdered is so uh, resonant with today. And where, said out loud you know, by the characters outside the pizzeria, yes, yeah. which is really striking. It just feels like the time between then, 30, you know, 29 years ago and now just collapses uh, when you're watching that scene. Can I just also say that, like, an aspect of this movie that always comes to mind for me, um, but that I don't think is talked about as much, is just the way he uses summer and heat (laughs) Mm -hmm. as, 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 like, I mean, it's also just, you know, it's the incredible... um, it's the incredible cinematography as well, and just the way that colors like red and yellow um, pop. But also, you know, when you take colorful um, street style and you film it so beautifully, um, just the way it all kind of seems so much more alive than than I think it usually does. It just feels very vibrant. But it's also just to me, whenever it gets really hot and there is a racial incident, it, this movie, racial incidents bring this movie to mind anyway, but... Like the anger that I feel that feels exacerbated by the fact that that there's this literal heat um, that just makes me feel, you know, I don't know. There's just something about the the heat in this movie that just feels very, very a part of the equation. Not that I'm blaming Summer for the fact that a racial incident happened, but, but more there's just something about going outside into a hot New York, humid, disgusting summer <laughs> and all this other BS is happening. And you're just tired of it. It just makes like something about the heat just makes you more tired and just less willing to put up with crap. Mm. And I think that feels like a part of the movie. He creates a fascinating sense of place in that, like, the movie is literally, you know, it is textually set in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. Um, and and we see real streets in Brooklyn, like it, it, it has a, a keen sense of actual geography, but it also, in some senses, and I would have to think this is intentional, feels a bit stolen away. I mean, there's a background element to it, like where we hear about the rest of the city. We know the rest of the city is sort of teeming somewhere outside of the film's frames, you know, but but the movie is so local and and and, and, and makes it in that way seem 
like a microcosm of any city in America, you know. Um, so it it has Lee's all, you know, New York specificity, but it really, um, I, I don't know. I think there's almost something not I don't want to say fairy tale or fable like, but it 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 feels a little stolen out of time. And I think part of that might just be the fact that we're still dealing with exactly the same thing, um, you know, today, thir- thirty years later. Um, but it it's just in terms of it's like mise-en-scene or whatever like it it it, it's really it's really striking how about the versatility of Giancarlo Esposito uh, (laughs) who everyone knows as Gus Fring now from uh from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul um and Bugging Out is just such an incredible uh character like just a catalyst and and uh, like I was just thinking about it yesterday after watching it um the the name the name alone you know I mean he just put Spike just puts it right in in the name like that is this guy's role he is gonna not really you know take anything lying down he's (laughs) he's, he uh and it's it's just incredible um I was reading a uh, Entertainment Weekly reunion they did where they interviewed a lot of the cast and and Spike Lee and uh Giancarlo Esposito was talking about how his I think his father's Italian and his mother is black um so he was you know he says danny Aiello, we were simpatico open hearts real italians danny embraced me but once the camera's rolling we'd stop speaking all i wanted to say to him was i'm more italian than you but i'm in a black movie by spike lee so i had to stand up for the african part of me <laughs> it's uh, uh he's fascinating and yeah i love the glasses because it's hard to recognize him in there like if you know him as gus frank you're like hang on a second like can that really because he's so young in this too so young yeah i mean martin lawrence too you see martin lawrence in there you're like wait because that was before he had been in anything, right? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I can't think definitely of what we would have known Martin in. Yeah, definitely before Bad Boys, before Martin, um, the the sitcom. Yeah, no, really early, really young. Although it's good to see that he's not changed. Yeah. <laughs> and Samuel L. Jackson um, credited right. as Sam Sam Jackson. I mean, I think this is pr- probably pretty early for him too. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be. Um, well, Cam, as you said, basically at the beginning of this, if you haven't seen Do the Right Thing, that really is the place to start with everything. It is easy to rent on iTunes, even if it should be on Netflix. Um, oh, I did want to say one final thing. Um, going back to the Oscars and, um, and Cam, your piece about Do the Right Thing and Driving Miss Daisy is a, a central reading, too. But I love thinking about the moment when Spike Lee did win the Oscar for... Um, for Black Klansmen and Samuel Jackson was the presenter kind of because I think they knew that Spike Lee was going to win. And um, for all the, t- for all the ways that Spike Lee is cooler than the Oscars and doesn't need it and has spent all his time talking about how driving Miss Daisy, nobody remembers like the glee with which he jumped into Samuel Jackson's yeah. arm. I think about that all the time. Like Spike <laughs> Lee too. is better than the Academy, doesn't need them, but he was so happy. And then that, you know, the video of him on, on his way into our party where he um, said that green book was not his cup of tea and then like dances away with his Oscar. Uh, uh, I love that. that is one of my favorite video clips of all time. It's so great. <laughs> You're British? Let me tell you, it's not my cup of tea. I'll give you a very British answer. He's such a goofball. He's, he's also such a goofball. He's also, by the way, a good actor. Like he's really oh, good at yeah, this. Yeah, he's so you know? good. Um, oh yeah. I mean I mean Nike commercials, what would they have been without Mars Blackman? <laughs> yeah. So now for the interview portion of our show. Uh, first up, we have Chris Rosen, a, a writer for our Hollywood section, got on the phone with James Corden, who is the the host of The Late Late Show with James Corden, is a nine-time Emmy winner for uh, Carpool Karaoke and various other short-form shows and for the Tony Awards, uh, multi-accomplished, like 
all the other Late Show hosts. He has been broadcasting from home from quarantine and learning how to adapt to that. And also, as he talks about with Chris, how to address the ongoing protests and discussions about uh, racial justice happening in our country. So let's listen to Chris's conversation with James Gordon. So thanks for joining me, James. I'm here on Little Goldman. You know, you had a couple of really great segments uh, recently that I wanted to talk to you about last week, the Monday after the initial protest broke out. Uh, your monologue was incredible, I thought. It's been a humongous success uh, online. I think it's got like over 3 million views on YouTube. I saw it really anecdotally. I saw a lot of people sharing it. Um, you had you talked about like what you were going to say about this particular moment in time and, you know, you had this one part, I'm just going to read it. You said it, but for those of you who have not watched it, white people cannot say anymore, yeah, I am not racist, and think that that's enough, because it's not, it's not enough. Because make no mistake, this is our problem to solve. How can the black community dismantle a problem that they didn't create? I found that the whole thing really strong. I just wanted to talk, like, ask you like how, you know, what went into writing that monologue and like how much, like, you know, kind of like talk about the process behind that. Well, the first overwhelming feeling that I had really was kind of what I said just before that part which was like who wants to hear what I've got to say why like I'm just not in the mindset that I think well people really need to hear what I've got to say about this because they don't like I'm just that's just not who I am, you know, to so think about that. And then and then as I thought about that and I, and I talked it through with Ben Winston, who's the exec of our shows, my, my best friend, that was then sort of the, the jumping off point, really, which was, well, actually, maybe the important thing is to say I am hopeless in this. And actually, I think there are lots of people who feel that way, certainly white people who feel the pain of it, are desperate to help, are 100% confident that they are not racist at all. But then what you have to realise is go, well, my, my lack of racism is not enough. Like, that isn't it. You cannot carry on your day with blinkers on thinking, well, I'm fine. That's the most I can do. And that line, how can the black community dismantle something that they didn't create, um, is, was actually a direct text from a, a friend of mine. So I just reached out to friends of mine and I was like, look, I'm struggling with this slightly. Like, tell me the thing that you want to hear, like, because what I don't want to do is do the equivalent of a politician offering thoughts and prayers after a disaster, you know? It has to be more on the front foot than that. And, uh, and I spoke to, to, to lots of friends of mine and, and that was really something that a friend of mine was like, look, we, we need white voices. We need people to say enough. And that's what's been incredible this week, actually. That's what's been amazing. If you look at the sort of drone footage of I think it was Hollywood Boulevard yesterday. It is an overwhelming feeling of enough. Enough. And and that's what we that's what we tried to say really. Was we tried to say this is as a as a white 
41-year-old father of three who grew up in the most accepting family, grew up in an understanding family. Did look like you, ca- you cannot be, you're either racist or you're against racism. You can no longer sit comfortably in the middle because this is our problem that we have to figure out. And I'm saying this safe in the knowledge that I know nothing and I am deeply uneducated, but I would like to learn more. And it's okay to say I don't know enough. It's okay to say I haven't read enough. I don't know enough. I have not been exposed to it in the manner that I should, but that will stop today and I will start a new lifelong quest of education in this, you know? Uh, and that that's really how, how I sort of feel. And I think that's how lots of people feel. You kind of, the, the, you segue into another thing you did last week that I thought was really powerful. Like you had a segment with one of your writers, Olivia Harewood, uh, and yeah. she was schooling you on the notion of white privilege. And you kind of like speaking to what you just said there, playing into your, you were playing up your stupidity on it, like in a very, uh, you know, self-aware way. And it, and she was able to explain to you and obviously to then the audience probably many of whom are white people who have been defensive in the past about being called on their privilege, uh, what that actually means. I really like that segment a lot as well. I thought that was like really well done and kind of like was something I think, you know, a lot of people know, but not enough people know, let's say. So I was wanted to hear from like, is that a, was that a pitch that she made to you or was that something you guys had discussed and like can we'll talk a little about that? Yeah, well, it came, yeah, well, it was, it was, uh, it came from Olivia Harewood and and I think a brilliant writer called Tom Trevini was involved in it. Predominantly, our show is a variety show. Our show is about scale and variety and joy. And what we want to do is be a light in the corner of your room before you fall asleep or on your phone on your train journey the next day or when you're with your children at the weekend and you saw something you want to share it with them you know and that may be like driving around in a car with somebody running out into the street and performing a musical uh like when the lights are red like all of those things is what we want to do now obviously that's been more challenging in this time of of uh of lockdown but like what we don't want to do is do the news we feel on our show that it's really important that we don't do that, that we don't become a, not that we ever could, but that, that we don't become a sort of political commentator who essentially, you know, that's just not our job. It certainly doesn't play to my strengths. Like I am at my core a performer. So really the challenge in these moments is of course like look monday's show was as moving as i've ever found any show we've ever done like particularly when we started talking to to reggie and which wasn't planned in any way like we just said to reggie like we're gonna we're gonna come to you if you're gonna come to you uh, uh, if, if there's anything do you know what i mean we spoke to dr michael eric dyson um and then and then came to reg and and, and and seeing him talk so openly and honestly and in a way that he he couldn't sort of you know it just fell out of him this this emotion the emotion of the weekend and it's the same for you know many people on our staff and I'm sure many people that you work with like look it, it was really really hard and so that monday show was 
unbelievably moving and and and, and I hope we you know we we really tried to sort of get it right as best we could and then you go well, okay well we want to keep talking about this but we we really have to try to make it entertaining we have to try to make it funny and what is the best version of a zoom sketch we can do and that is it isn't easy doing those things but i'm blessed to have like a, a writer's staff like we have even more blessed to have a writing staff who are equally as deft performers as like Olivia Harewood is. And so, and I, you know, look, it was really, really, it was informative. It was under, you know what I mean? You, you learned something from it. And then, and then we tried to just try to make you, if not laugh, share a wry smile whilst we are trying to keep our message going, you know? You mentioned the fact that it's like isolating for you to do it. As a viewer, I was like, obviously I watch your show and like all these late night shows, everybody's doing kind of, there's no audience, you know, and you're kind of like trying to, you're watching people in their homes and do different, like kind of adapt to the circumstances. The thing that's been shocking to me at least is how quickly I've become accustomed to the fact that there isn't an audience and how it doesn't even bother me anymore when I watch these shows. Is that for, as a host to, especially your show, which I think the audience is such a huge part of it and like kind of like really brings an energy to it is that like scary to hear a viewer like myself be like yeah i don't even know maybe the audience isn't even like you know what i mean like i just i'm surprised at how well these shows are adapted without an audience i guess yes but i think that's also to do with the time i think that's also to do with the way that we're all feeling in this time so actually actually we've all been experiencing these sort of these spikes in anxiety and these feelings and moments of, of fear of we're in an unknown you know what I mean whatever your circumstance and so actually it would be, I think there's a chance that it would feel quite jarring at the end of the day to walk out of a curtain and yeah thank you so much oh we got a show for you tonight you know there's actually like look the best thing to come out of for me I think the situation of coronavirus is that for the first time, historically, if I was to speak to you now or you were to speak to some of your friends previously before this, you go, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm great. Yeah, how are you? For the first time, it, is, it has been acceptable and welcome to go, how are you doing? And you go, do you know what? I'm struggling a bit. Do you know what? I am finding this hard. And, and like, don't make any mistake. That is a wonderful thing for us as human beings to be able to share straight away. And I found myself sharing it with friends of mine. And I'm talking, you know, b before this past 10 days, I'm talking at the very, very start back in March. Oh man, I'm really struggling with this. I'm finding it difficult. And we would sort of reach out to, a to each other in a way that we hadn't for a very long time. I don't know if you found this. I found myself having conversations with, with friends of mine who I hadn't spoken to in quite a long time. It had been the odd text and check-in and whatever. And so, actually, if late-night shows, if their purpose is to be a, a, a reflection of what's happening that day, there's something, and I think the reason you're saying that you, you, you've rather like it is actually you're, what, you're, what you're seeing is someone in quite an intimate environment when you're feeling quite... Inf in, like quite intimate and potentially lots of people on their own 
and seeing someone on their own going, how are you doing? And, and that's why, like, when we made that, that Home Fest show, the only thing we wanted to say is, like, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to reach out to someone and say, do you know what, you crossed my mind, are you all right? Or to reach out to someone and go, can I just chat to you for a minute? Because I'm really not doing great in this. And that is a really positive thing to take from a, a, a brutally awful situation. And I think that's perhaps why it feels quite an easy adjustment to make in that sense as, a, as an audience. That what you want to see is someone going, I'm on my own as well. And, and that's what we've tried to do on our show from the start of the show to the good night. Like our show is normally about scale and size and jumping out of a plane with Tom Cruise and whatever, you know what I mean? Big, big, big stuff is what we want to do. And actually what we've done is like, just, hey, how are you? You know? And that's, yeah. that's, that's what we've tried to do. And now for our second interview, we are going to share a conversation that our own Joanna Robinson had with Watchmen creator Damon Lindelof. And to introduce it with me is Joanna Robinson. Hey, Joanna. Oh, hello. Hi, Katie. Uh, Gone yeah, but not am... forgotten. Uh, and, and we should say Joanna's going to pop back up from time to time to introduce some interviews she did, which is uh, great for all of us. Can't get rid of me. Um, yeah. So I just I just want to say before we, we get into this interview with Damon, which I think is really great interview because of him, not because of me. Um, I just wanted to say that we recorded this several, several weeks ago. So before in the middle of the pandemic, but before, you know, this this round of like protests and uprising and, and conversations around black people in America and the police, which, as you might imagine, is a very pertinent topic to the TV series Watchmen. Um, but if we don't delve very deep into that, that would be why, because we talked about this sort of uh, before current events and also um, any answer Damon gave, though thoughtful, I think, was not necessarily calibrated to exactly what's going on right now. That said, I do think it's um, prescient in, in one particular place where he talks about kind of how he built the, the writer's room of Watchmen. As you were talking about, he brought in, uh, you know, Court Jefferson, who co-wrote this one uh, major episode with him. Um, the Nostalgia Trip episode is what you called it. Um, and he just talks about picking up Ta-Nehisi Coates's, um Between the World and Me and um, kind of trying to do it just to, like say he'd done it and then how it completely changed the way he looked at white supremacy in this country, which I imagine there are a lot of people going through similar experiences right now. So uh, Damon was ahead of the curve in that way. And um, hopefully he would still give the same answer now. I think so. Yeah. So let's listen to the great Damon Lindelof talk about Watchmen. I was actually, just before I uh, hopped on the phone with you here, I was watching your first Emmy win for season one of Lost. Um, Hugh Jackman has uh, his Wolverine mutton chops. Uh, on as he's like presenting the Whoopi Goldberg, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, like, what do you, you know, this is this is your first show that you're like running, and it's the first season. It's a huge success, and then you win an Emmy on top of that. And I'm just wondering, I the reason I'm asking you this is I just heard uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross tell their story of when they won the Oscar, and it's hilarious. I mean, just oh my god, their their memory of it. So I'm just wondering what your memory is of that moment, it feels like it would be a surreal experience. It was a very surreal experience. Um, the entire sort of path from season one into season two of Lost. So the Emmys happened, I think in like September. So we were already fairly knee deep in, in season two. And it was either on the, ver it was on the verge of premiering 
but that was when the show was like at its height because everybody was wanting to know what was in the hatch and, and all this. So it's like in the montage, in the crazy sort of like montage of like, uh, of, of like a rock band, uh, going from obscurity to becoming like, you know, hard days night. Like (laughs) I would say like, that was like the peak of it right there, the Emmys. Um, but at the same time, it was very grounding because every day we were still going in and working on the show. So it wasn't like something that was finished. It was something that was still very much in process. And so JJ called me up and he said, uh, look, we, we need to figure out who's going to speak if we win. And I was like, what? What, what are you like? He's like, we, we could win and we should figure out what who's going to who's going to say something and what they're going to say and i was like i don't i don't want to you just i don't want to participate in that but that's a this is a very strange conversation to be having i feel like we're jinxing it and uh like i don't you know and he, and and just i am someone who is always at award shows when someone gets up there and they're all flustered and they're acting all surprised and they don't know what to say my wife and I always turn to one another and go like, Oh, come on. You, you were one of five people. You had to know this was a possible outcome. Like (laughs) it's great that you're, that you're excited about it, but be prepared. And so here I was directly contradicting myself. So JJ and I uh, disagree and Carlton had come on um, midway through season one. So he and I were actively running the show, but the pilot had been nominated for a bunch of stuff. JJ was nominated for directing. JJ and I were, uh, were nominated for writing the pilot alongside Jeffrey Lieber, um, as was David Fury for writing Walkabout. And then we were nominated for drama series. And so the agreement was that obviously if JJ won for directing, he goes up alone, he's going to accept that. If we win for writing, JJ is like, you're going, you're going to accept the writing Emmy. So prepare a speech for that. And then we agreed that if we won for drama series, JJ would also accept that because even though he hadn't been around for the majority of season one, he was the 800 pound gorilla. And he, he, he was sort of like, I know how to give like a good Emmy speech if, if that's what it comes to, but we're going to lose to house. I think was like sort of the conventional thinking <laughs> so they, the Emmys roll around and JJ wins for director. And that was the first moment where I was like, Oh shit. I like, it's possible. Like, he was right. Like we could actually win something. And I had sort of, you know, I'd written something for if we won for writing um, and it was folded up in my, in my touch jacket. And then the writing Emmy came and house won. Um, And I was like simultaneously bummed and relieved um, because nobody tells you that, uh, well, I don't want to say that I think like everyone does, but you kind of want to win, you know, like, when you're, yeah. when you're sitting there in your tuxedo and you're answering all these questions about how it feels to be nominated and then, like, I don't want to be directly competing with my peers, but then you're sort of like, oh, that, uh, that would be cool. So we didn't win, but then I was relieved. And then I was like, okay, we're definitely um, not going to win for a drama series because the show's so weird and it's serialized and there's a monster in it and it's season one. And this was a year that I think The Sopranos was not in competition. So it was like, it was possible that we could win, but I think like the, the competition was fierce. And then Hugh and Whoopi got up there and, um, and they, and they said lost. And I was like completely like sort of entered into this fugue state where everybody in our section was getting up and all of us were walking up to the stage. And I was like, 
all I remember thinking is, thank God JJ is going to speak. And then I got up onto the stage and he handed me the Emmy. They had given it to him and he just stepped back. And I was like, Oh, I guess I'm talking now. And I turned around and I looked and that countdown clock that everyone is always referring to (laughs) and would be very, um, you know, uh, prescient in terms of the next season in the hatch. It was, it was all, it was already at like 21 (laughs) and counting down from 21 by the time I realized I was speaking, I literally don't remember what I said. I, when I watched it after the fact later, it was like my body had been taken over by another being. And I like said like, God bless at the end of it, which is like, you know, I'm like, I'm a spiritual enough guy, but I don't say God bless ever. Um, it was very strange. It was like, it was, it was like watching somebody else, but very wonderful. And, um, you know, something that I will uh, never, ever forget, except for the fact that I completely forgot it as it was happening. <laughs> you know, when we, when we talk about this season of Watchmen, you know, it, uniformly excellent, but I think a lot of people agree that a standout episode in this season is episode six, the, the nostalgia trip episode. Um, you've got Stephen Williams directing, you've got your co-writing with Cord Jefferson. And so I'm just wondering, you know, this episode that has so much to do with a black man's experience in America, whether alternate history or not, you know, at this point in your career, given all the stories you have told, at what point did you learn the lesson that, um, I really want to bring in other voices, on the kinds of stories that I want to tell. I want to find collaborators who have a a different or more immediate experience with these issues than I do. Well, first off, thanks for saying all that. And secondly, I have to say that it's a lesson that I was hearing for a very long time and selectively ignoring until it became impossible to ignore when I became compelled to tell you know, a story inside the Watchmen canon that was predominantly about race versus that race was a component to it. It was like by making race the central story idea, it would force me into a position where not just I would, I I think it was a shift away from, I'm going to bring in um, perspectives from writers and directors of color to collaborate with to help me tell my story, the shift was, is there a way I can help them tell their story? Mm-hmm. Um, and because I had become so, there's no other word for it, enamored, infatuated, obsessed with the writing of Ta-Nehisi Coates. And in full disclosure, I've said this before, but I have to say it again and again and again, I read Between the World and Me to virtue signal. I didn't read it because I was like, I, I'm ready to take a deep dive and, and acknowledge what it is, what my role in, in, in systemic white supremacy um, in the country. I don't want to have to look at myself in the mirror. I've, I've done a very good job of avoiding that and still appearing to be progressive and woke. Then I read that book so that I could tell people that I read it and post about it. And then, but it changed me. I had a, it was like, it was like someone who reads the Bible, like just to say they've read the Bible and then they become a zealot it shifted the way that I saw everything. And then I did the deep dive on all the pieces that he wrote for the Atlantic 
and listen to every podcast that Ta-Nehisi Coates ever did, including several long-form ones. And then I was just basically, that was my conversion process, listening to him talk about what role white people in positions of influence could take to advance the cause. And uh, like, I, I took it to mean like, basically like, um, take a step back, don't step off the stage, but take a step back, um, on the stage. And, uh, and then I did everything that I could to replicate that process emotionally. And as I said, at first it was like, it was a good intention, but when it actually started to happen, I still felt like I wanted to be like, okay, thanks. You've been on the front of the stage long enough. I'm going to now take my position of power back, but to stay, to stay there. That was what I learned. Um, for someone who's always used to being the voice in the room that's talking the most and in the captain's chair to really cede that position. It was, you know, again, this is not anything that I'm looking for pats on the back on. It was absolutely and totally essential for this story to be told, but it was not easy to do. And I think it's important to tell that part of the story because to kind of just say like, yeah, I just decided that I would take a step back and it was totally cool. It, it was brutal once I made it through the other side of that. And that required a tremendous amount of, of trust. Um, fortunately, the people that I was partnering with were so immensely talented that that trust was, you know, resulted in, in this season in that episode that you refer to. So I feel like I helped Cord, I helped Steven, I helped Regina, I helped Javon sort of figure out how to tell that story versus the other way around that that right. was a perspective shift that was like, as it was happening, I realized it was happening. But I think as I went into it, I was sort of like, I'm going to stay in control by seating control when I'm comfortable seating control versus I'm going to be uncomfortable the entire time. And the only way to not be uncomfortable is to accept that I'm going to be uncomfortable the entire time. Something I've heard you say before is that when you think about creating a story, you think about why now? What about now requires that this is the story I'm telling? We've been living in an era of superhero supremacy for the past decade or so, but we are suddenly finding ourselves in uh, extraordinarily different times. Um, and I'm just wondering if you've thought about what the superhero narrative or the vigilante narrative uh, can do to help us understand, you know, pandemic, uh, quarantine, all the other things that we're grappling with right now. That's such a good question, and it is one that I've been thinking a lot about. And I think that I'll, I'll answer it specifically to superheroes, but I think that this applies to sort of a broad range of storytelling, which is what is the primary appetite going to be for the next several years of storytelling? Is it going to be escapism, or is it, or is it going to be I need to understand what happened or what is happening? In other words, will audiences largely reject storytelling that is not at least thematically addressing what we're collectively going through as a world where you like, you know, you look at the movies of the late 1970s, the, the cinema, and they were all reflections of, you know, Vietnam and some, American cinema, at least Vietnam in some way, even though they weren't all about Vietnam or there was sort of a collective shift. And then you sort of like move into the 1980s and you're, you're getting much more escapist fare. So I don't know, like, if the answer to your question is we need the Avengers to be dealing, like, with something that is reflective of um, of the coronavirus 
um, a, a post-coronavirus world, or did they already do that in an infinity war where, <laughs> you know, half the, half the world's population uh, was wiped out and, and then they were saved again. But I do think like people need stories to reflect the times that they're in and then present some version of catharsis. And so like, obviously if you just talk about the Marvel universe or, or the DC universe, and you specifically say like, so Matt Reeves is making a Batman movie. Do you want the Batman movie to take place in a world where, where COVID-19 happened or it feels like it's a thematic comparison to COVID-19? My answer is no. Like Gotham city is not in our world. It's, it's, it's an entirely different sort of universe, but what I am hungry for is like new ideas or new takes on, on these mythic characters. And I do think that like, there's a lot of space for iterating forwards or asking new questions that doesn't betray the canonical versions of these characters. And to me, the best superhero movie of the past decade, it's sort of, uh, there, it, it's a close race, but I think like Into the Spider-Verse is probably my favorite mm-hmm. with Black Panther a close second. Um, but, but ask me tomorrow and then Black Panther will move back into the pole position (laughs) because both of them are just like using really interesting new ideas without aberrating from the canon. Um, and my ask for the superhero genre would basically be like, is there another way to show the Waynes being murdered that doesn't involve the Pearl's? dropping in the alley and Bruce standing there looking kind of vaguely horrified. I mean, like Nolan kind of did as good of a version as you can of that. And it's sort of like, but, but, and and then we saw it again in Joker, obviously in a movie that's not about Batman, but we saw it again. And it's sort of like, my challenge would be like, okay, the Waynes are murdered. Yep. And, and she was wearing pearls. Got it. But show me something new. Give me a new idea that, that, that still means that this kid's going to grow up to be Batman. Have to do that. You can't do Superman if Krypton doesn't explode. That's the canon. But, but like, give me something new. Tell me that story in a slightly different way or from an entirely different perspective. Like, tell me that story from Martha Wayne's perspective. You know? Right. Uh, like, that would be interesting. So, I don't know. I, I feel like we... I, I am a little bit tired of, of the old myths. All right. I don't know if this is too personal. You can let me know. Uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, I just talked to them last week, and they said their work was driven by um, a deep insecurity, uh, sweat-soaked sheets, sleepless nights. And they said that that was something they had in common with you, that they felt a kinship with you because you were driven by the same thing. Uh, Do you feel like that's accurate? Uh, It is accurate. And uh, I'm not a night sweater. Um, because <laughs> I, I get out of the bed. And so my anxiety is just reflected in sheer sleeplessness. And I want to be respectful to my wife, who I share a bed with, to not be, be wide awake all night. But when I'm in process, and it was certainly like this on Watchmen, it's like the, the misery of working with me is that it's never good enough. Like, it's never good enough. And eventually you have to stop because you've run out of time. And you're not stopping because it's finally good enough. You're stopping because you've run out of time and you have to move on to the next one. And Trent and Atticus are exactly the same way. I was very nervous at first to 
like give them notes. So the idea of like, they would turn over music. And so the idea for me to basically say, I love this, but could it be more like this? Or I was thinking it would be more like this, or is this a place that there should be music or a place that there shouldn't be music? Can I say this to Trenaticus? You know, um, like I worship these guys. Um, but then right out of the gate, when they would send over music, they would always send it with the codicil of, we, we, we feel like we're starting to move in the right direction, but we hate it, you know? And I was like, oh, thank God. Like, they're just, you know, they, this is a language that I speak. And so I think that the idea of iterating forward that in, in some ways there's this catch-22 or, or at least a paradox where you feel like, but you guys have had immense success and not just the genre of being rock stars, but also in being composers. So you have to know that you're really good at this and you have to have the confidence to put yourself out there and do it time and time again. So you know that you don't suck, right? But for every new project they do, they consider themselves as learning on the job. And that's the way that I look at it too. And the most infuriating thing for me is that when I beat myself up and I say that I suck, when people say to me like, what do you mean you suck? No, you don't. Like you've had success. And it's like, just because I had success once doesn't mean that I, that I don't suck or can't suck. You can't surround yourself with insecure people. You have to surround yourself with people who challenge themselves constantly because they know that it's just as easy for them to fail as it is for them to be immensely successful. And the only difference between the two is iteration. It's just going back and trying it again and again and again and again and again. It really is just like, I think talent is very important, but equally important is just like stick-to-itiveness and the acknowledgement that you are fallible. And if you find the right recipe and you start working with people, you rely on them to say you can stop now. So I think Trent and Atticus would still be writing for Watchmen if I let them. You know, like, but I, I got to be the one to say to them, this is good enough now. But then we'd be at the mix and I'd be like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about this episode. And they would say to me, dude, this one's good. Like, and so, you know, and then you trust that person because, or, or, or people. And by the way, this not only extended the trend Atticus, that was Nicole Cassell. That was almost every single writer in the writer's room. Um, that was like our, our top-notch sound team. That's the actors where it's like when Regina King says to you, you know, did I get it? You're like, what? You're frigging genius. Did I get it? Like, how could you not know how good that was? Um, yeah. But, you know, those are the people that I'm most comfortable working with. And then my last question for you, David Lindelof, is, you know, you've, you've spoken about this idea of fans growing up to sort of uh, work on the property that they grew up with. So Star Wars fans growing up to make Star Wars movies like John Favreau's a Star Wars fan. Now he's making Star Wars movies uh, or at least TV. You grew up reading Watchmen and you're a Watchmen fan making Watchmen. And I'm wondering though, because you've been in the industry for a little while now, your legacy is so strong. Are you seeing the lost fans growing up to make TV? Are you seeing that legacy are you hearing from people making tv about what your work how your work has formed uh or at least informed theirs oh my god i mean that idea terrifies me and it's <laughs> it's you know it's incredible it's incredibly flattering that you would even even frame a question that way 
because I see myself in continuity with that stuff versus, um, but, but that's what I think is so cool about storytelling, which is, you know, George Lucas comes along and the stuff that inspired him to make star Wars, you know, um, like samurai movies and Westerns and et cetera. It's, and, and then he makes star Wars and then that's kind of its own new thing. And then star Wars inspires, you know, a whole, a whole spate of us. But as long as, as long as we're just, you know, as long as we're making the versions of the stuff that inspired us, that's a separate conversation than the stuff that we're doing. That's quote unquote original. And so right. like lost, I think is a slightly separate category than Watchmen or certainly Star Trek, because in terms of the mindness that I feel, and also as it relates to lost, and I'm not just saying this to, to deflect your kind premise, but (laughs) again, it's like lost with so much of a reflection of the people that I collaborated with at first JJ, it would be such a different thing if, if, if that, it hadn't been forged in that partnership. And then, and then of course, Carlton for the almost the entire run of the series and all those other amazing uh, storytellers, writers and directors and actors, et cetera. Then with the leftovers, Parada wrote it, you know, I mean, it was a book that existed and would exist. And there would be a television show called the leftovers had I never been born. Um, And it would have been different than the one that I got to make with Parada. So first off, like a a little part of me dies every time I refer to myself in the third person. But I think like what what the most cool thing about the Damon Lindelof brand is that (laughs) you can't really like, you can't really tell where the, where the Damon Lindelof ends and the other collaborations begin. You know, if you're looking for sort of like the overlaps in the Venn diagram between Lost and Watchmen and the leftovers, I think it's probably, okay, this guy is like really interested in nonlinear storytelling, stole that from Tarantino and, uh, and like, but everything else he kind of cribbed from Back to the Future and Star Wars, you know, and I'm putting my, I'm putting my own spin on it. And I'm, I'm, you know, I, I really look at myself as I'm very comfortable being a DJ and not a musician. Like that's where I feel like my best storytelling comes from. And if that's inspiring other people to tell stories, that's the most flattering thing. That's super duper cool. But the less that there's a Damon Lindelof thing or a recognizable Damon Lindelof oeuvre, I think the more successful I am at what I do, the more I disguise my meanness. Excellent. Well, I look forward to whatever you disguise uh, yourself in next. And, uh, and thanks so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joanna. That does it for this week's podcast. We will be back next week. Um, please go to VanityFair.com and read all the various lists we've been talking about. Uh, Cam and Richard's list of the best movies of the year so far. Richard on um, not coming out movies. Uh, Cam on black protest movies. There is a lot of good stuff to read. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And you can find us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard. Rylaws. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Cam. On a break from Twitter forever, save yourselves. <laughs> you are here to change our minds at long last. Yeah. Is there anywhere else you would like to point people to find more of your work? Uh, Instagram, um, Brownie Camera, Camera with a K. Cam, on your you you should have it so when people go to your former Twitter account, it's just a gif of Rosie Perez dancing or something. Like, just... <laughs> I that is all you need to see. It really is. Uh, this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best reason that this podcast is not behind a paywall goes to Cam Collins. 
Why would you pay $20 for something that isn't Trolls World Tour?